0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live
1: from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know... Flexible friends, the EU offers the UK yet another Brexit delay. A political win, President Trump announces ISIS leader al-Baghdadi is dead. And diamonds are a girl's and potentially Louis Vuitton's best friend. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, coming to you live from London, where we've gone from Brexit to Flexit once again this week. The latest on the Brexit delay in just a moment. But first, let me give you a look at futures right now, firmly, as you can see in the green on Wall Street, in what's set to be a pretty big week for markets. Investors expecting a Federal Reserve rate cut on Wednesday. We've also got the FANGs out in force this weekend. No, not those FANGs. I mean the tech FANGs. We have earnings from Facebook, Apple and Alphabet. And we can throw in Friday's jobs report and a first look at third quarter growth numbers for the U.S. too. So a busy week. What about the S&P 500? While that was on track for a record close on Friday before we eased back slightly, we should be therefore close to record territory again in early trading today. Stocks rising even with mixed earnings at this stage and lowered estimates from the likes of Caterpillar and Chip bellwether texas instruments there's a real glass half-full feeling i think in markets at this moment and perhaps that's justified right now we've got 60 percent of the world central bank's easing policy we're looking at the biggest synchronized cutting cycle in some two decades plus president trump literally just in the last few moments saying the u.s china trade negotiations are going well and that he hopes to sign a deal at the upcoming apac summit But this is not just a U.S. story. Now, while the S&P 500 has gained one and a half percent over the past month, the MSCI Eurozone and the emerging market indexes have risen more than three and a half percent. We've also got the Nikkei over in Japan outperforming, too. We'll come back to this theme later this week as I look to be opportunity there. But for now, let's get back to Brexit, because that's where we're going to kick off today's drivers. The EU has accepted the UK's request for a third Brexit delay. The latest extension will likely push Brexit into 2020. The question now is whether the news out of Brussels will bolster the UK government's call for a December election. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, it may bolster their call. The question is, can they get the two-thirds majority they need to see elections come 12th of December? It looks incredibly tight, if impossible.
2: Uh, it does feel that way, certainly as the government has framed it, which is to get that 12th of December election, you also have to sign up to a very short period to negotiate the legislation of the withdrawal agreement bill. Um, and that is something that has been resisted in Parliament as well. So it seems unlikely that uh, Boris Johnson will get the support that he needs today for that uh, uh, election in, on December the 12th. However, the Liberal Democrats and the Scottish National Party uh, are concerned Considering introducing uh, uh, introducing uh, the alternative of a December the 9th election that could that could happen tomorrow that could be offered to a vote and it could be a simple 50% uh, a simple majority a 50% vote in Parliament on that and where we're at today with uh, this flex extension that's being offered by the European Union the government here still has to accept that and then that then that gets ratified. Tuesday or Wednesday finally to really come into effect uh, but I think after the vote today uh, that Boris Johnson is looking for for that December the 12th uh, election there's still uh, there's still a huge number of variables as there always is with Brexit about the directions that it could go in Julia
1: absolutely and the caveat to that effective olive branch over an election from the Scottish National Party and the Liberal Democrats here is no more debate on Boris Johnson's current withdrawal deal. So does the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson agree to that in order to get an election before December, even if it means they can't debate their deal? Dead in a ditch feels like a long way ago for, uh, for Boris Johnson here.
2: It does. And certainly there's a lot of uh, some, you know, MPs in various parties calling the Liberal Democrat SNP uh, 9th of December uh, election uh, a stunt. Uh, so it's not clear that uh, the Prime Minister would sign up for that. Uh, You know, he still is intent on trying to get through the withdrawal agreement bill in a shape and form that's acceptable to him and his party Uh, and if that is completely removed from the table until after the election that that takes away from him the uh, sort of electoral bounce that he would have if he'd successfully negotiated it, which is the terms that he's sort of uh, offering today, if you will. So um, there are minuses in this if the Prime Minister takes the SNP Liberal Democrat offer. Um, the Prime Minister, we understand, may also be considering his own version of uh, that what's known as a one-line bill, uh, simple 50% majority uh, you know, decision on an early general election. Um, what else will he attach to that uh, really isn't clear. Um, the benefits for an early election from him are certainly stronger if he's been able to prove that he's getting what he wants out of withdrawal agreement bill and so far he doesn't have that in the pocket
1: yeah there's no easy solutions here and there never has been nick robertson thank you so much for that all right next driver hsbc's global business is taking a hit the bank has reported an 18 percent drop in profit before tax for the third quarter it shares Here in London are down some 4.5%. Cherise Pham is in Hong Kong for us. Cherise, we were expecting to see some weakness, particularly when you look at the Asia business in Hong Kong, but actually HSBC pointing to weakness in the United States and in
3: Europe here driving these numbers lower. Talk us through the details. Yeah, Julia, this is a bad omen for all bank earnings. As you know, HSBC Mm. is something, a barometer for the bank industry, and the bank is facing significant headwinds. We've got the U.S.-China trade war. We have falling interest rates, which makes it hard for them to make money in mortgages and loans and the retail services there. And of course, we've got broader geopolitical uncertainty in places like where you are, over there in London with Brexit. And of course, all of that coming into play in today's earnings, we had profit, pre-tax profit of $4.8 billion. And the vast majority of that was made in Asia. HSBC pointing to Hong Kong as a bright spot, which is noteworthy because we are in our fifth month of mass protests and political crisis here in this city. But Hong Kong uh, proved to be incredibly resilient for HSBC, and Asia continues to drive this business forward. HSBC uh, still warning that there is more pain ahead. Uh, CEO Noel Quinn saying, quote, our previous plans are no longer sufficient to improve performance for business in Europe and the United States. And we are therefore accelerating, accelerating plans to remodel them. So I think if we read between the lines there, we can expect pain and probably job cuts ahead, Julia.
1: Yeah, and that remodel coming, we assume, at the full year earnings when we get them in February. So we're going to have to wait a while to find out what the details are. But I want to get back to what you said about um, Hong Kong, a bright spot right now. But I did notice that they made a huge increase in their provisions for potential bad loans going forward as a result of the ongoing protests right at the time when we see Hong Kong now in technical recession, or at least we're expected
3: to see that. Yeah, the Hong Kong economy is really starting to hurt from 21 weeks, five months of protests rocking in the city. Um, We saw the financial secretary come out over the weekend saying Hong Kong's in a technical recession. The city is expected to post uh, negative growth for GDP on Thursday, its second consecutive quarter. Uh, so- things are not looking great here. But that being said, the investment community hasn't really turned its back on Hong Kong yet. We still see big IPOs making their way in Hong Kong, including uh, AB InBev's APAC business just a few months ago, making that $5 billion IPO market debut here in Hong Kong, the second biggest in the world so far after Uber. So a mixed bag, certainly Hong Kong, a bright spot for now, and hopefully will continue to be because once again, Asia is the driver of, of HSBC's business at the moment, Julia.
1: Yeah, I'm watching out for that remodeling plan. Cherise Pham, great to have you with us over in Hong Kong there. Next driver, Louis Vuitton, looking to add another jewel to its crown, the luxury goods company eyeing a takeover of Tiffany's. The iconic New York jeweler confirming that LVMH is offering $120 per share in cash Tiffany calling it an unsolicited, non-binding proposal. Anna Stewart joins us with all the glittering details. I tell you what, Tiffany's share price glittering with joy here and not yet near that 120 mark. Talk us through the details here.
4: Rocketing higher, $14.5 billion. That's what they're valuing Tiffany at. And speaking to analysts today, and I've spoken to a slew of them, they all seem pretty confident that this is a good idea for both sides of the company. It's the price that's really the question Uh. here. Now, Jewellery remains one of the most attractive categories in luxury. Tiffany adds to LVMH, something it doesn't have. It has Bulgari, but this is a much broader consumer base. Silver jewellery, more affordable price points, obviously. I'm sure not your thing at all, Julia. Um, (laughs) Now, also America. Tiffany has 44% of sales in America compared to LVMH with just jewellery and watches. That's just 9%. So that will bring it back up.
1: The geographical diversification Mm -hmm. here, critical. You know, I was looking at some uh, analyst commentary here, Cohen saying a fair offer for Tiffany's here, around $160 a bid.
4: Wowzers. That seems lofty. Yes. $120 is where we're at. Now, some people think that is a little bit low. That's already a 20% premium on the closing price on Friday, and we saw shares up last week. So actually, that's already really a 30% if we look further back. The problem with Tiffany, we've had a sales slump. We've had a huge turnover of CEOs. The new one came in in 2017. We have not seen sales pick up. There's a lack of direction in terms of millennials that's what experts say. However, I guess Tiffany would argue the one thing that they've got going them right now is China. They are growing in mainland China where other luxury groups are failing.
1: And that's such a great point. Actually, I was just looking at the closing peak, $139.50 on July 2018. So if you're talking about $160, that's humongous in terms of premium. I think But to your point about China, Asia concern about luxury demand there so a little bit of diversification here in particular for a company that is managing to grow particularly in this region very important here
4: crucial i think china is crucial when we look at any luxury business but this one's so interesting just because its sales are slumping absolutely everywhere else it's interesting that that is a bright spot for them yes
1: anna stewart sparkle queen for us there thank you so much for that all right let me bring you up to speed now with uh, some of the other stories making headlines around the world The Kremlin says if it confirms the death of ISIS leader al-Baghdadi, it would be a, quote, serious contribution by U.S. President Donald Trump. The Russian military initially cast doubt on whether the operation had actually taken place. President Trump announced Baghdadi had been killed by U.S. special forces in Syria over the weekend. Boris Sanchez is at the White House for us. Boris, whichever way you look at this, it's a huge victory, I think, for Donald Trump and the White House here.
5: Yeah, it certainly is a victory for this administration. Julia, Uh, the president again today uh, touting uh, the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and his role in it. Uh, The president standing outside of Air Force One, speaking to reporters before heading to an event in Chicago. Even the death of this brutal terrorist, though, is facing partisan spin. The president uh, using this to go after Democrats. Uh, The president did not alert Uh, Congressional leadership, the Democrats specifically, about this raid before it took place. So he's facing criticism for that because the president coordinated with the Kremlin on this raid beforehand. Uh, So Democrats are essentially charging that the president trusts Russians more than he trusts members uh, of his own government. Uh, The president here uh, shooting directly at Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, saying that he's a corrupt politician, that had he shared this information with Democrats like Schiff, it could have led to leaks that could have put U.S. forces uh, in danger. So even a, a positive for this administration facing that sort of partisan spin, likely having to do with the impeachment inquiry that's still ongoing in the House, Julia.
1: Yeah, it's it's also important, I think, to bring in strategic partners in this, the intelligence gathering that was going on. And I guess the other question that will be asked here is whether or not the timetable for this raid had to be accelerated as a result of the U.S. decision to pull troops from the region. What do we know about that, Boris?
5: Well, there are still many questions about how that announced withdrawal from President Trump several weeks ago uh, may have hastened the approach to this raid. We are told by at least one defense official that it did not have an effect on this raid. Uh, But of course, uh, the future of the situation in Syria and whether it could potentially lead to uh, the resurgence of ISIS is something that is top of mind for many officials within this administration, specifically advisors to the president who counseled him on really giving second thought to such an abrupt withdrawal, not only because of the incursion of Turkey, obviously, into that region, but potentially what this could mean for terrorism uh, broadly and for the United States specifically as well.
1: Yeah, some very important questions, but for now at least a win as far as uh, the death of the leader of Islamic State. Boris Sanchez from the White House, thank you so much for that update there. President Trump received a less-than-cordial reception at the Major League Baseball game on Sunday. He was greeted by boos and chants of lock him up, quote, after his picture appeared on the Jumbotron. The President and the First Lady were attending Game 5 of the World Series in Washington. This was the first baseball game President Trump has attended since entering the White House. Over in India, people are celebrating Diwali, yet many are concerned about the pollution created by all the fireworks. This year, officials are allowing only green pyrotechnics. They say pollution levels jumped nearly 40 times over what's considered safe after last year's festival. And still to come, on first move, Argentina casts a clear vote against austerity, returning center-left Peronist Alliance to power. And Microsoft wins the battle for the combat cloud that Amazon could contest the 10 billion dollar Pentagon contract. That's all coming up. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move, coming to you live from London with a check on Wall Street futures as always. And stocks look ready to rally this week. The S&P 500 on track to open in record territory today. It was briefly on track, in fact, for a record close on Friday that we pulled back slightly. The Nasdaq, though, the big market winner last week, rising Almost 2%. Watch the fangs, of course, this week, or at least a few of them that are reporting. We also saw solid gains for some beaten down value stocks last week. Investors seemingly looking past some of the mixed earnings results and hoping that we've seen the worst of the numbers here amid a global economic slowdown. Positive comments from President Trump on trade talks this past hour also helping its sentiment too. Let's hope we're not speaking too soon. But for now, let's return to the latest on Brexit. The European Union says it will accept the UK's request for a further extension or flex tension until January 31st next year. The delay, therefore, would tear up the Prime Minister's (laughs) promise to leave the European Union by Halloween. Now he's calling for a December election to break the deadlock. Parliament votes on that motion in the coming hours. Boris Johnson needs the backing of two-thirds of the House of Commons. So far, the opposition Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has refused to play along. Joining me now, though, Labour MP Kate Hoey, who is pro-Brexit. Kate, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Do you expect
6: the vote today to fail? Let's begin there. Well, today's vote, I think, will probably go down. A two-thirds majority is quite uh, difficult to get uh, when there are substantial members of parliament who will do anything to stop us leaving the European Union. So it's it's not just now about a simple uh, majority and people who want an election. It's about whether people who want to stop us leaving think that it's better not to have an election. I, I personally will vote for a general election. I think when the government can't really get its legislation through and when the government can't govern properly. I mean this parliament is, is now a bit of a shambles to be honest and uh, therefore I think a general election is necessary to change that whole situation and allow us to get on with either getting out or getting on with other business as well.
1: I mean, that's certainly the argument the the, um, the Prime Minister is making at this stage. Jeremy Corbyn, though, the Labour leader, has suggested that if no deal is taken off the table here, which you could argue has been done by the EU offering extension to uh, the 31st of January here, what's his reason for holding out and not providing... Uh, the votes here from the Labour Party to sanction an election, at least to break the deadlock, if not because he's worried about a significant loss in that election.
6: Well, of course, uh, 70% of our seats, where we have Labour MPs, did vote to leave, and therefore he is aware that up in the north of England and in the Midlands and various parts of the country, South Wales, there is a real chance that Labour will lose to uh, a combination of Brexit Party and 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 a sort of anti anti uh, anti Labour feeling. Um, and so that's worrying him. Obviously, and MPs themselves who think their seats are at risk don't want to vote for a, a general election, a bit like Turkey's not voting for Christmas. But I think. It, He is going to have to change once the other two opposition parties, the Lib Dems and the Scottish Nationalists, although they may not vote for that motion today, will likely to put forward their own no-confidence motion linked to a general election uh, tomorrow. And that would mean that I think Jeremy Corbyn and Labour would look really ridiculous in the country if having called for a general election over and over and over again in the last year, they suddenly decide we're, we're not having it. And, you know, the thing about no deal is the only way no deal can be taken off the table, is either with a deal or by uh, revoking Article 50, which of course made it very clear that we would leave with or without a deal. So, th- this whole thing about no deal has just become a kind of a mantra that is now, ch- you know, chanted out by people who don't want us to leave at all. Kate, hey, you said you won't run in the next election, so
1: you can talk pretty freely here. Do you see Jeremy Corbyn as a a liability now for the Labour Party heading into a fresh election.
6: I think once there is an election and there is a campaigning, Jeremy Corbyn is very good at campaigning. He's very good out there with people, but he has been rather trapped by his own uh, backbenchers and some of those people who, want, who didn't want him as leader in the first place. And they've used the European Union issue and Brexit as the issue to kind of beat Jeremy down because, of course, he was a lever. He voted with myself and other people many, many, many times over the past number of years. And he's now been rather trapped in that he's had to go against what he really believed believes in, in order to keep his party together. The problem is out there in the country, people don't understand that, and therefore I think it is going to be difficult, but um, the, all those people who want to get rid of them, um, you know, they will be wishing, perhaps some of them, that um, Labour doesn't win an election and then they can all fight over who's going to take over from them. That's being, <laughs> that's being realistic.
1: And that's the way it looks because you know i come at this from a business journalist perspective and when i speak to big investors they say there's effectively two toxic options here there's a no deal exit or there's jeremy corbyn and they see it as being pretty toxic for the uk do you think that's justifiable as you think yeah. to your point actually they don't have to worry here because he'll be replaced
6: Well, no, I mean, you can't, you can't, the the way we select our leaders is is, is that every member has a vote. And of course, when he was challenged last time in Parliament uh, by uh, a substantial, a big majority of Labour MPs challenged him, there was another leadership election and he won with an even bigger majority because the average rank and file member, a lot of them who joined since he became leader, are going to continue to support him, whatever his views are on the uh, European Union. But, you know, I think sometimes we have to think of what's in the best interest of the country and not our party. And I just feel now that business needs certainty. Business needs to know what's happening. And this this extension, again, is just going to cause so, so much problem. I would have liked to have seen us get out. I, Boris Johnson was not able to take us out because Parliament put in that ridiculous uh, amendment to actually say we couldn't leave, um, at, you know, without a deal. And therefore, the, the Ben Act was really sending a signal to the European Union look do what you like Mm. because Parliament's not going to back a no deal and that's where we are now so I think we need a general election to get this all out and let people decide let the parties have their manifestos and let the country decide
1: yes key line there put country before party Kate Hoey great to have you with us the British Labour MP there the market opens next stay with us more to come To First Move, I'm Julia Chatterley, live from London. That was the opening bell back at the New York Stock Exchange for the first session this week. Stocks beginning a really important week with solid gains. The S&P 500 was poised to hit records at pre-market. What about what we're seeing right now in early trading? Right now, higher by some four-tenths of one percent. Yes, I make that a fresh record, three 3,025 on target for a record close. So that's the level we've got to close above. 3,027, then we've hit an intraday record high. So we're just a point below that. Investors clearly expecting a Fed rate cut this week. Futures right now signaling a 93% chance of a cut. What do they say about the outlook, though? And that would add some 40 rate cuts around the world over the past three months. So uh, just additive to the global stimulus that we're seeing right now. Let's talk global movers. Spotify is rallying in this session. The music streaming service posting a surprise profit and better than expected revenues. The number of paid subscribers to its premium service also surpassing expectations. Right now, that stock up 8.6%. Look at Tiffany's. We've already spoken about that up. Some 30% in the session trading above that $120 price tag. Interestingly enough, the jewelry giant confirms that it's received a $12.5 billion takeover offer from LVMH. Tiffany says it's reviewing the proposal, which values Tiffany, as I mentioned, at some $120 a share. Cohen analysts, as I mentioned earlier, too, saying $160, $160 is a fair price. So watch this space for a potential revision to that offer Microsoft also in focus. It's higher by some 3%. Amazon, meanwhile, trading lower. The Pentagon awarding a massive $10 billion cloud computing contract to Microsoft. Amazon was considered the front runner, and reports suggest it could challenge the announcement of this deal. Christine Romans joins us now. The force well and truly with Microsoft on the awarding of this JEDI contract. The question I think is being asked, though, by Amazon and everyone at this moment Was it politically driven here, given we know the president has uh, one or two issues with Jeff
7: Bezos and, and his businesses? I mean, the president has been very vocal about his. I, I I don't think "hatred" is too strong a word of the Washington mm-hmm. Post. He thinks doesn't like the Washington Post coverage, and the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Of course, the Post editorially operates uh, separately from Amazon, but not in you know the view of the president of the United States. So he has criticized Jeff Bezos. He has criticized Amazon. He has, without evidence, said that Amazon is ripping off the postal service. There have been independent analyses have shown that that is that is not true or doesn't doesn't really bear out uh, in the numbers, but the president has that in his mind. Uh, so here you have Amazon, which is the world leader in cloud computing services, right? Going head to head with Microsoft and others for this big JEDI contract. JEDI stands for Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure. And it's very cool and it's worth $10 billion over 10 years and Microsoft wins. So there were obviously questions, did the president put his thumb on the scale? Uh, the government, the Department of Defense says no, it was by the book and all of the bidders were, were created exactly in the same way. The evaluation process was appropriate and the DOD uh, uh, chose Microsoft uh, in the end. But in a new book by a speechwriter for James Mattis, a former defense secretary, this book paints this picture of the president going to Mattis and saying, screw Amazon on this. I want to make sure you guys screw Amazon on this on this bid. Um, there's no evidence that anybody did what the president asked, but still, that raises a question. One wonders if Amazon will consider maybe its options here, even potentially trying to go to court over this.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to say, in the awarding of these contracts, they had to expect scrutiny. They had to expect questions. So to be able to, be, albeit unable to justify the decision here, would seem a little crazy but I guess the other point is irrespective of what Amazon do here, this is not going to be the only contract. This is not the only Pentagon no. contract out there and um, Amazon has to continue to fight to, to get those as well over the coming months and That's years. True.
7: I mean, by one analysis, I saw just about 10 percent of the sensitive data that the military has, the government has, has been uh, migrated to the cloud. Just 10 percent. So There is a huge market there. And it also could be that when you're looking at the people who are making these decisions, what other kind of calculus do they have? Do they want to diversify? You know, do they want to make sure they have different providers for different parts of this of this business? You know, this was a a long and you're right, highly. Uh, lots of scrutiny on this on this process, and, and from from what it seems like, it seems as though the president may have made suggestions against Amazon, at least if you believe uh, this book, but that maybe his subordinates didn't didn't follow him up on it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So no doubt further scrutiny, a hundred billion dollar potential uh, offering here, yeah. according to Dan Ives. To your point, yeah. So there's more to come, yeah. Christine Romans. Thank you for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Still to come, back to Brexit. A Brexit extension could pave the way for a general election in Britain, but what it means for Boris Johnson and for the UK government and the economy going forward. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a return to events here in London. The EU granting the UK the Brexit extension it requested. The Prime Minister never wanted a further delay. Parliament forced his hand and now his fate and the country's lies with lawmakers once again. They vote in a matter of hours on whether to give him a December 12th election. Joining me is pro-Brexit economist Roger Bootle, Chairman of Capital Economics. Roger, great to have you with us. (laughs) You say a, an election here is essential to break the deadlock to some degree. Do you think by the end of this week, by hook or by crook, we end up with an election date this December?
8: Oh, I Sorry. hope so. <laughs> um, I, mean, I think we're all exhausted by this. Yeah, we this. are. I mean, insofar as I understand the politics, today's vote is going to be voted down. Yes. Boris Johnson's not going to get probably what he's been asking for. But the important developments over the weekend suggest that the Scottish National Party and the Liberal Democrats will be prepared to cooperate with him. And as I understand it, this requires just a simple majority in Parliament. To so put those three together, the Conservatives, or most of them, the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, he'll then be able to get a vote, uh, uh, an election. And if it's a th- Few days earlier in december frankly i don't think it makes any difference at all
1: yeah a lot of us raised eyebrows over yeah. the change of dates yeah. an election is an election you ask a really important question though and the suggestion when you look at the polls is that by and large for for the majority of voters this is going to be an election if we get it based on brexit your question is but w- what do the labor party leader jeremy corbyn or what does boris johnson as the conservative party mm. leader mean for the economy going forward, for policy? And it is a critical question. We can't ignore this.
8: Well, I think this is the great tragedy of the events of the last few years, or at least one of them, uh, that we haven't had a proper debate on these really important issues about our society and the economy. It's all been Brexit, wall-to-wall Brexit, and most of us are fed up with it. And there's some very serious questions at stake here. I think the electorate does have a pretty good idea of what Jeremy Corbyn stands for, and outside the Labour Party, most people don't like that. What we don't have a very clear idea of, I think, actually, is what Johnson stands for. And that's going to be really interesting, how he fashions his, his tilt at the electorate. What's the offer Offering. And there are some signs he's going to try and take some ground from Labour, actually, uh, and be arguing for and says so he's going to deliver big increases in spending on the NHS, aid for the regions, a move, if you like, towards the centre, not going for the straightforward Thatcher policies of cutting ta- cutting
7: taxes.
1: So the end of austerity, more spending. Mm. But what about the things that are needed to raise productivity to your point about potential corporation tax cuts, yep. individual tax cuts and paying for that extra spending where mm. does that come from?
8: Well I don't think he knows uh, and uh, I understand this because after all the first thing is he's got to get a majority, he can't govern at the moment, so although we desperately need answers to these questions, in a way they are premature uh, let's see what the man does if he gets a majority, then he's got to face up with these questions and they're not easy, how on earth do you turn around Britain's productivity records, not good. And it won't be an easy way of, uh, of doing it. You
1: said we all know what the Labour policies Might are. So. Just explain to me, because for for those outside of the UK, it may not not actually be that, that clear. And there are a lot of people, particularly when I speak to larger investors, that mm. worry about what Jeremy Corbyn means. They worry as much, if not more, as a no-deal Brexit scenario mm. and what that creates for the economy. Well, I think they're
8: right to worry, and I'm not saying this from a party political point of view. I think there have been lots of very good British Labour governments, and the markets and investors have worried unnecessarily. Indeed, some of these Labour governments have been more effective and more pro-business and better for the economy than the equivalent Conservative governments. This is different. Uh, what Jeremy Corbyn is espousing is a policy of large-scale nationalisation, so a reversal of the Thatcher reforms of the 1980s, as far as public ownership is concerned, increased taxes on individuals and... And companies, the restoration of trade union powers, a much bigger role for government in the economy and even to the point of returning uh, exchange controls. So unless you are an out-and-out socialist, it's very difficult to think this would be other, other than a disaster for the economy.
1: So you're saying, and, and you are biased because you said Look, mm. a clean break from the EU is okay and would be mm-hmm. a, good, a good decision in, in many respects, you're saying actually the, by far the largest fear mm. here should be a Jeremy Corbyn
8: Government. Hmm, absolutely. I've been telling clients all around the world for the last I don't know how many years, forget Brexit. Although I'm a Brexiteer, I don't actually think that the fate of this economy hangs on that issue. If we didn't leave, it wouldn't be what I'd want. But I don't think the economy would collapse because of it. But I do think the really, really big issue is a Corbyn government.
1: Do you think voters are coming to realise that? Yes. To get back to where you started? You think they do? Mm. You think they understand that how angry they are with austerity, how angry they are with a Conservative government that's Mm. failed to deliver Brexit, that's failed to deliver any solution here? Mm. They recognise that Jeremy Corbyn represents potentially a larger threat.
8: I think that's right. You can never be sure, of course, until the only vote that counts. That's the one at the ballot box. Yes. But I think the signs are they're bored stiff with Brexit. I mean, there obviously, there are some extremists on either side who are Brexit fanatics. I think that's all that matters. But I think the rest of the country pretty much just wants to get it over and done with. But it's quite clear uh, what Jeremy Corbyn stands for. And all credit to him. I mean, I don't agree with him, but he hasn't uh, hidden his views. He believes this stuff. And I think the electorate uh, understand that.
1: Yeah, just tough, tough if you're a Remainer, quite frankly, because I don't know what your choices are. Roger, fantastic to have you with us and feel better. I know you're yeah. unwell, so um, I appreciate you coming in. Roger Boutil there from Capital Economics. All right. Let's move on. The centre-left Peronist Party returning to power in Argentina after storming this weekend's election. Voters rejecting the austerity measures of President Mauricio Macri and elected Alberto Fernández. The election also sees a return to power for Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, now Vice President Elect. She previously served as Argentina's leader. Now the Argentine economy has been spiralling recently, only getting worse as investors feared the exit of President Macri's more business friendly government. Let's take a quick look. Back in May of 2018, the peso weakened sharply amid a flight from emerging markets. The next month, the IMF agreed a three-year, $50 billion bailout. Fast forward to August of this year, and President Macri found himself in second place in a primary vote. The next day, the peso fell over 15%. All that is Leading up to this weekend's vote, where those fears came to fruition with the election of Alberto Fernandez. Joining us now is Hans Hume, CEO and chairman of Greylock Capital. Hans, always fantastic to have you on the show. Are investors right to fear the return of a Fernandez, or at least Alberto Fernandez, in an in a leadership role in Argentina going forward?
9: Uh, <clears throat> I don't think people are uh, worried about Alberto Fernandez. I think that there was a um reaction to the the margin of victory in the Paso back in August um i think that the polling suggested it was going to be an extremely close election uh and when the 16 point margin came out uh people really were you know were shocked that um there was such a surge of populism and such a reaction against Makati. um <clears throat> but i think really what's been putting pressure on the markets recently has been the uncertainty it's it's not so much the people are scared of Alberto Fernandez. I mean, I, I dealt with Alberto Fernandez when he, he was chief, chief of staff of Nestor Kirchner, and he's actually an extremely pragmatic, uh, rational politician. Uh, he doesn't come from the hard left. He's actually very solution-minded in his approach to political and economic issues. Um, there was a bit of fear of Christina Fernandez the Kirchner, but that, that ends up becoming something where we're handicapping who's going to be calling the shots in this administration.
1: And will he call the shots rather than her?
9: Um, There's a lot of speculation. Uh, I would say that, especially in the tradition of Peronism, the person who's in charge, who runs the party and who is the president, calls the shots. Um, She's had her turn. uh, And I think that there are... um, enough signs that he's going to be the person who is going to be designating the people to lead um, you know the sort of the economic effort the negotiations with the creditors uh, of which I'm one uh, with the IMF um, so we'll see I mean going into the midterms if things aren't settled down in two years there may be a struggle for control between the so-called Campura and Alberto Fernandez uh, but I would yeah I would think it's him who is going to be calling the shots and you know realize also that there are a number of channels of communication between the two. There's a lot of overlap in, in influence. Um, Sergio Massa is going to be the president of the uh, uh, deputies um, Congress, and and he has a good relationship with, with both Cristina Fernández Kirchner and Alberto Fernández. So my sense is there'll be a reasonably cohesive approach um, to governing, you know, from December 10th on. You know,
1: you've laid it out here, we need to see a credible economic adjustment plan going forward. He's got to keep creditors on side, he's got to appease the IMF here too, but you know when I look at the 10% unemployment rate I look at the reason why Macri was thrown out of power, 60% interest rates and crippling effect that has on the real economy how does he put forth something here that works for everybody where President Macri couldn't?
9: Well, I mean, listen, I, I think that the one encouraging sign that I got from people around the Fernandes camp when I went down the week after the Paso um, was that everybody hearkened back to Lula in his first term in Brazil. Um, and they were the ones who they were also talking about a credible uh, reprofiling So in terms of sort of a a model of how do you implement the kind of, oh, I don't know, change or programs that the IMF is going to deem uh, necessary if they do get a new program, there's a better chance that a Lula or in our country, Bill Clinton can impose sort of measures on the economy that, a more sort of typical free market candidate wouldn't be able to put in place. So I think there's some latitude, but the reality is, yes, there needs to be social spending. And I think the big um, issue that will be front and center in any negotiation with creditors or especially the IMF will be social spending. There isn't really clearly an appetite for big cuts in social spending in Argentina. That's why Alberto Fernandez won the presidency. So the IMF is going to have to take a hard look at, at some of their programs. And this reminds me a little bit of Greece. Um, there was a, you know, the not so much the IMF, but certainly the EU is dictating some harsh austerity measures. And it's argu- arguably why the Greek economy took so long to recover. You know, I think the social spending will need to happen in Argentina. Um, and I think that the kind of If you need a primary surplus, it's going to have to come from growth in the economy, not from cutting expenses, at least with the election results that we've just had.
1: Yeah, but you also make a great point that sometimes tough policy is more acceptable from a centre-left candidate or a president than perhaps from centre-right or right, which is going to be uh, quite interesting to watch. Hans, fantastic to have you with us. Hans Humes there, chairman and CEO of Greylock Capital. Thank you for joining us. All right, let's move. just going to take a quick break. We're coming up to boldly go where no stock has gone before. Virgin Galactic making history as the first ever space tourism listing. But don't pack your space suit just yet. That story just ahead. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move, and a brand new listing at the New York Stock Exchange is literally out of this world. Richard Branson celebrating the launch of Virgin Galactic as a public company today, the first ever publicly traded space tourism stock. Claire Sebastian has been watching the action. I'd say sign me up, Claire, but it's at $250,000 of price. Probably not right now. Talk us through it.
10: Right, and Julia, that is the the real question for investors today: Is this a sustainable market going forward? The proposition yeah. from Virgin Galactic, and they haven't actually started commercial flights yet, although they say uh, they're a couple of months away, is, is a 90-minute experience. You get uh, sent into uh, the edge of the Earth's atmosphere on a, uh, on a on a rocket-propelled plane, and you get a couple of minutes of weightlessness, and then you come back. and The cost is, of course, a, a quarter of a million dollars. So the the, the question is whether. That market will continue to be sustainable. So an unusual proposition for investors, Julia, and also an unusual path to the public markets. This isn't your traditional IPO. Essentially, the way they've done this is by merging with an existing company called Social Capital Sophia. That company was already public. So essentially, what we're getting today is is a name change, a ticker change. They're now going to be called SPCE, like space, uh, because they merged with Virgin Galactic. And this uh, helped Virgin Galactic come to the public markets, raise some more money to continue to fund their operations, but avoid all the cost and disruption, they said, associated with a traditional IPO. IPOA, which is the original uh, ticker symbol of social capital, Hedotopia, that was already up 13% or so since they announced the merger with Virgin Galactic.
1: Yeah, competition fierce, Blue Origin SpaceX. But to your point about the sustainable model, at least for now, this is really the only way that investors can get direct access to space tourism as an
10: investment should they want to do so. That matters. Yeah, that matters. And, and look, there's no real sense apart from, uh, you know, speculation that, that Blue Origin, which is uh, owned by Jeff Bezos, the, the CEO of Amazon, uh, is looking to go public. That uh, company, of course, has very deep pockets because uh, Bezos continues to sell billion dollars of Amazon stock every year to fund it. And, the, you know, this company, uh, Virgin Galactic, has 600 uh, plus tickets already bought uh, on the plane. So that is, of course, implied revenue in itself.
1: Yeah, Claire Sebastian. Thank you for watching that story. We'll see how it trades later on today. But that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. You can listen to our podcast too, CNN.com slash podcast. But you've been watching First Move. It's time to go make yours. And right now, stocks are trading at record highs.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.